Hello, welcome to my podcast, Revolution, the Chinese Culture Revolution and the French Revolution. This is episode three, A Struggle to the Death. In the last episode, I discussed how France had financed the American War for Independence, and that proved expensive for France. France was on the verge of bankruptcy, so officials proposed radical tax measures, and they sought approval and assent to those measures or those proposals with the Assembly of Notables. We learned, however, that the Assembly of Notables scorned the proposals and instead suggested the king convene the Estates General. That suggestion, an extraordinary one. Meanwhile, poverty got worse, certainly exacerbated by the bread shortages and price increases in Paris. What started out as a financial fiscal problem would become a political problem, too. For China, Mao Zedong believed his nation was more and more becoming isolated, particularly with respect to their old comrade, Russia. To restart his communist goes, he launched the Four Cleanups Campaign, in 1963. That turned out to be an utter failure. He needed an even bigger move to push the nation to communism and rid the CCP and China and those he felt were in the way. In the coming movement, he would make war against the four olds. It was clear both France and China were not able to reverse or stop the circumstances that had brought them to the brink of revolution. Another well-known revolutionary leader from a different revolution and a different time said, a revolution is a struggle to the death between the future and the past. Pointing to an exact date or event that definitively marks when the French Revolution began is difficult. There are major events that certainly can be identified as that point. But as I view it, there were several events that mark the start. Unlike the Chinese Culture Revolution that I will discuss shortly, the French Revolution did not have an opening salvo, so to speak, that marks clearly the beginning The winter of 1788-1789 in France was an unusually cold one. Making that winter worse was the summer that preceded it. That summer was notable for bad hailstorms, 
bad storms, and followed by a bad harvest. Grain prices soared, and that only made worse the lousy economic conditions in France. People had to spend more for food and therefore had less money remaining to spend on other things. An economic slowdown resulted. Layoffs were many. Into this foray, the popular Jacques Necker was again appointed for the second time in August of 1788 to France's Director of Finance. And he immediately tried to impose price controls on grain. This was seen by many as a positive response to the problem. But Necker inherited an almost hopeless fiscal and political situation. His other large and important duty at this time was to reconvene the Estates General. The Estates General, as I have mentioned before, was last convened in the year 1614, some 175 years before. The 1614 Estates General was comprised of three orders, or estates. The first estate comprised the clergy. The second estate comprised the nobles. The third estate comprised the commoners and the bourgeoisie. It is important to understand the Estates General then voted per order. In other words, each estate only had one vote. So it is quickly obvious that any two of the estates could outvote the third. That detail is vital to this story going forward. So, at the onstart of the discussion in France, aside from the legislative representative assembly examples set by the 1614 Estate General, all France had to go on for this newly convened Estates General were the makeshift local assemblies and parliaments to guide it in how an Estates General should look like. There was also the issue of defining what was clergy, who was a noble, and what was a commoner, and also how the members, to be called deputies, were to be selected. Almost immediately after the decision was made to reconvene the Estates General, a national discussion began about increasing the size of the Third Estate and that the Third Estate should be allowed to vote by head rather than per estate. On December 27, 1788, the King of France determined that the size of the Third Estate would be roughly doubled than what it had been before. Then on January 24, 1789, he issued the edict that officially convened the Estates General. To begin May 5, 1789, at Versailles. I ask my listeners at this point, can that now be defined as the starting point of the revolution? The edict, the issuance of the edict, I mean. 
But one issue was left unresolved. How should voting be done in the Estates General? Per head or per order? That decision would ultimately be left to the Estates General. That decision, or the lack of it, that failure, would have enormous ramifications. Unlike France's revolution, the beginning of the Cultural Revolution is a little clearer. At least, that is what most historians say. On May 16, 1966, Mao Zedong published in the People's Daily a document appropriately named the May 16th Notification. This is the event the date that most historians point to as the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. The notification warned that the CCP had been infiltrated by counter-revolutionary revisionists who were plotting to create, quote, a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, end of quote. A warning that capitalists were among the CCP The notification continued, summarizing Mao's ideological reasons for the Cultural Revolution. The notification introduced the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. Mao's plan, initially, was to mobilize urban youth. But once the Cultural Revolution began, it took on a life of its own, with unforeseen, unintended consequences. Before it all started, Mao organized a group of trusted people to help him with the Cultural Revolution. It would become the main political organ by which all top decisions were made. It consisted of his wife, Jiang Qing, Lin Biao, Chen Buda, Peng Xin, Wang Dongxing, and others. About the same time as the publication of the May 16th notification, another significant event occurred. Mao Zedong had orchestrated the arrest of four of the top leaders of the CCP, accusing them of plotting against him. One of these that was arrested and accused was the then mayor of Beijing. The Cultural Revolution Group was led by Chen And after stirring up the party with the May 16th publication, Mao fled Beijing to Hangzhou, leaving the shocked remaining CCP leaders confounded as to what to do and what did Mao intend. Confused, Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping flew to Hangzhou, seeking Mao's counsel and advice but they found Mao aloof and evasive, and they soon left. Mao was content leaving the two in charge as he sat back and watched China descend into chaos. The only thing Xiao Qi and Xiaoping thought about doing was to dispatch work groups across Beijing to schools and businesses. 
Thousands of these groups were sent out. Soon, the rest of China followed. Despite some official directives and encouragement from CCP leaders, local officials acted according to their own interpretations. Expectantly, this created much inconsistency and chaos. Nobody wanted to be called a revisionist, but in the absence of an official, clear guideline identifying true communists, everyone was suspected of being a revisionist. Once the date was set to restart the Estates General, an extremely complex election system and rules were put into place. The elections to select deputies to have a seat on the Estates General would begin that spring of 1789. And the results from those elections were shocking. For instance, with the first estate, the clergy, it did not turn out the way it was hoped. The higher-ranking church officials were passed over. Instead, lesser, more local clergy were chosen. It was the parish priest over the bishops and higher-ranking church officials that were chosen. To the commoners, this was looked on as a good result. By the time of the elections, there was already growing resentment by the nobles toward the liberals over the lightning rod issue of headcounts over votes by estate. The elections for the second estate deputies there too showed a preference for some of the lesser known and less prominent elites. Some of the second estate deputies that were chosen, many of us recognize their names. Marquis Lafayette and Duke de Lauran. The third estate elections went down with no big surprises. It would certainly be the most homogeneous and united of all the estates. Most of these deputies had a legal background and many were landowners. In the end, some nearly 1,200 deputies were chosen. The clergy and nobles, about the same total number of deputies. The commoners had double the amount of either the clergy order or the noble order. The stage was now set for the Estates General to begin. A feature of the early Cultural Revolution was the plastering of exterior walls everywhere with propaganda. Some of the propaganda were written expressions or mantras. Some of it was enormous color portraits of Chairman Mao. The work groups quickly stigmatized people as either rightists or counter-revolutionaries, and early on, many careers and reputations were ruined. The first iteration of the student Red Guards formed and took shape. More about these later. One thing was clear. The students did not need much encouragement to start this first phase of the revolution. On June 1, 1966, the CCP landed another bombshell. An editorial appeared in the People's Daily, written by Cultural Revolution Group member 
Chen Buddha, urging the masses to clear away the evil habits of the old society by launching an assault on monsters and demons. It was also publicly revealed that day that the four CCP members had been arrested and why they had been arrested. The editorial singled out the bourgeoisie specialist, scholarly authorities, and venerable masters who were entrenched in ideological and cultural positions. It was still, however, unclear how to identify these monsters and demons. Some cadre interpreted the pronouncements as a new version of the anti-rightist campaign. Some believed the mandate was meant to expose teachers and students who opposed the CCP, that these people had to be exposed and removed from the schools and other institutions. Party officials even set a quota of 1% of the students in China they expected had to be exposed. That would have put over 250,000 students in harm's way. The work groups encouraged students to denounce these monsters and demons, and, as I already stated, they did not need much encouragement. Some as young as 10 years of age lashed out at their teachers and faculty and administrators for any prior humiliations or transgressions the students had suffered. They accused the individuals of lacking proper proletarian feelings. Textbooks, teaching materials, curriculum were all scrutinized by the students. The less inclined students to participate in these humiliations were eventually rooted out and criticized. Teacher blacklists began to appear. Some put on it merely for silly or no reasons. Not surprisingly, teachers began to hurl accusations at other teachers in order to save themselves. Anything in their past was examined and could become fodder to be used against them if it did not align with current ideals, whatever those were, and they shifted all the time. Some of the accused could only purge themselves of the wrongs by writing self-criticisms. Some even penned self-criticisms in the hopes of leniency. Accusations flew. Hooligans, bad egg, filthy rich, blood-sucking capitalists, bourgeoisie rightists, running dog and spies. It was just a general atmosphere of hate. The Estates General began on May 5, 1789, at Versailles with much fanfare. All three states marched into the largest hall at Versailles. Both the Keeper of the Seals and Jacques Necker gave long, boring, meaningless, and at times inaudible speeches. It was clear, however, from the beginning of the assembly there was going to be trouble. The trouble came from the Third Estate. It certainly appears today that they had their own agenda, despite the king's official reconvening edict. The very next day, after the Estates General had opened, the Third Estate moved to rename itself the Commons. The clear assumption and statement was, was that the Third Estate was the only legitimate representative of the people. Thus, it immediately alienated itself from the other two estates. 
and to drive that wedge even further when the Estates General met again, the third estate made it clear it would not accept anything other than vote by head. The tension over that issue had been brewing for some time, and I guess, not surprisingly, the second estate withdrew from the talks. The third estate started to apply pressure on the first estate, the clergy, to support their head voting measure. A formal motion was introduced, and the first and second states did not show up. Thus began the struggle. Can that moment now be considered the beginning of the French Revolution, I ask? It was painfully obvious to everyone by then that that the great failure of the estate general was not resolving the voting measure before they assembled. In furtherance of the commoners' agenda, they voted to publicly open all of their deliberations and allow spectators. It was quite a spectacle. As the stalemate between the three estates continued, more and more spectators flocked to Versailles to watch and listen to speeches in the third estate. Rousing applause and support were a regular occurrence. One of the spectators was Thomas Jefferson, still on assignment as a diplomat envoy for the United States. He noted, quote, The debates in the commoners were temperately rational and inflexibly firm, unquote. Newspaper accounts grew of the deliberations, and as the accounts grew, so did the nation's attention. Eventually, a small number of clergy deputies broke ranks and voted in support of of head-by-head voting. By mid-June, the public discourse had changed. There was now a discourse. The Third Order should be the sole representative body. Public support for the first and second estates dwindled. In mid-June, the third estate overwhelmingly adopted the title National Assembly for herself. Any hope now of reconciliation with the other two estates was gone. Things had changed direction. Everyone could sense something was going on. The escalation in the first month or so of the Cultural Revolution in the rhetoric and the hatred soon turned violent. I guess that would surprise no one. Some of the victims in this early phase of the revolution were forced to wear dunce caps or hang placards around their necks announcing they were accused of this or that. They were paraded around campuses, shoved, spit on, and thrown at. Placards became heavier in proportion to the accused's sins, real or imaginary. Some of the placards so heavy it injured the wearer, sometimes severely. Soon the beatings came, some to the death. Students began to outdo each other to show their revolutionary fervor. Abuse intensified. Accused had head shaved in public. They were forced to kneel on broken glass. Some of the accused were segregated from the community and locked up at night in makeshift prisons on campuses, and these were called, infamously, cowsheds. The students would act as the sentries. During this early phase of the Cultural Revolutions, the violence remained confined to secondary schools and in Beijing. 
suicide became common. But work groups soon fanned out to factories. All of these early moves were overseen and directed by Vice Chair Lu Shaoqi. Easily now, by then, one of the most detested men in China. In late July 1966, Mao Zedong announced he was returning to Beijing. During his two-month hiatus, he remained elusive and reclusive. Mao took the occasion of his announcement to pull a publicity stunt, the iconic plunge and swim in the Yangtze River. At that time, Mao would have been in his early 70s. Symbolically, it was meant to show he was young with lots of vigor. Upon his return to Beijing in early August 1966, he met with Lu Shaoqi and questioned him why the schools were all closed and why some of the students' activities had been suppressed. This was a carefully laid trap by Mao to get his rival, Lu Shaoqi. You see, if Lu Shaoqi had let the schools erupt into demonstrations against the party, Mao would have accused him of, of being weak and a counter-revolutionary. When Shaoqi took action against the party's critics, Mao blamed him for suppressing the masses. Mao sent out culture revolution group members to undermine the work of the work groups. They warned that its support for the work groups was not the same as support of the chairman or support for the chairman. Chen Buda and Mao's wife personally took control over some of the students that had been accused by the work groups and publicly vindicated them. Mao ordered the work groups dismissed, scolding CCP officials for allowing things to get out of hand. To the vindicated students, Mao was a hero. You seriously had to ask yourself, at that juncture, what was going on here? Don't worry. Many others were too. In the next episode, the French Revolution continues to spiral out of control. I will talk about the famous tennis court oath and the storming of the Bastille and much more. The Cultural Revolution in China continues as well. The Red Guards will come into their own. The violence continues and spreads through China. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.